live, interactive, and here to assist you if you need help. Dealing with addiction, mental health challenges, and more. This is Road to Recovery with your host, Yona Bud, only on 640 Toronto. Good evening and uh, welcome to the show. You're on the Road to Recovery here with Yona Bud on 640 Toronto. I'm in the studio this evening with, uh, with my experts, Natasha and uh, Heather, and we're doing what, what we can to help you all connect and uh, see if you can get through some of the difficult times in your life and help us get through some of the more difficult times in our life. And we'd love to hear from you. Um, article that was floating around conversation news on our, on our network for quite some time last week um, was about really about the, the sailors uh, that have left the, uh, taken off the naval ship uh, that was in port um, in, uh, in, in, in the U.S. And the problem was that a bunch of guys, a bunch of sailors, male, I'm not sure if they're any female, uh, I don't have those stats, but um, basically took their own lives. And um, there were more than a half a dozen uh, of these suicides on board. Uh, according to the Department of Defense, 580 su- uh, service people died by suicide overall in all the def- defense departments in 2020. Uh, but there's you know, literally hundreds of people uh, sitting on this boat and they're really working on uh, getting it battle ready. So they know they're going to be going off to battle. Uh, so they're basically scraping paint, washing floors, uh, doing that kind of stuff, uh, not necessarily doing what they were trained for and having a really hard time just being kind of locked in position without knowing where you're going. And it kind of brought to mind, first of all, an interesting story because, you know, you got 200 sailors aboard uh, this ship that's actually in port. Uh, but they're not able to get off. They've been living on, on, on the ship itself. Now they have the opportunity to get off the boat. They're finding uh, other forms of residence for them and so on uh, because of these suicides, a string of suicides uh, along the way. So I began to think about what that looks like, like what that would look like for me, what that might look like for you in terms of being trapped, right? Being locked down. And then I started kind of thinking about what the whole pandemic lockdown scenario must have felt like, right? And um, and for people to start kind of guessing where they are and what they're doing and where they fit and, and how do you, you know, how do you get out of the rut sort of that you're, that you might be stuck in, for example. Right. And not so much in terms of physical lockdown. I figured I would look at this and say to myself, okay, what is, what does feeling trapped mean? So sometimes, you know, you feel trapped financially, you feel trapped physically, you feel trapped emotionally. So I want to just hit on a couple of things that just might help you get your life back. When you feel trapped, maybe something these soldiers could have done when they felt like they were, they're feeling kind of um, trapped in a position. So in terms of living in, in real life, not aboard a ship or a submarine or something cool like that, um, you know, if you're living in your own sort of home or your own apartment, whatever, um, feeling trapped often is driven by a lifestyle. So, you know, you're trapped in this lifestyle. You can't get out. You know, you're leasing this, you're buying that. You have to get these, you have to buy that. So the first thing that experts say is you got to live a lifestyle or live a way, a way that you can afford. You have to be able to afford the way you live in order to take the pressure off. So, you know, and, and what do you really need in life? What do we really need? You know, when during the lockdown, during the pandemic, I'm sure many of us, I certainly did, found myself, you know, doing, you know, having less, getting rid of things and, and doing less, you know, stuff that, you know, I really didn't need to do and focusing on what really mattered and what really counted and what really made me feel good. So that's really important. It's really important to base your life on what you need 
you know, versus sometimes what you want. And it's nice to want things and it's nice to have goals, but if they're driving you and they're driving the way that you think and how you feel and how upset you are at night because you don't have a second car or perhaps you don't have a down payment for a house, slow down. Live the life that you need to live for you that makes it comfortable for you. If renting an apartment or a condo or something or a home works for you, then fine. Make that work for you because it's affordable. It's something you can do. If you have to get around with one car and you know you have to share it with someone in the family or you know borrow it when you can, so be it, right? There's Uber, if you can afford that. There's TTC in this city. There's all kinds of transit. Live the life that works for you. So that's number one right? You have to live in a life. So I would think soldiers who were finding themselves you know, locked aboard a ship, so to speak, would have kind of signed up for that, being that they'd be at sea sometimes for months and months at a time. But I guess when you're scraping paint and doing stuff like that, and you're worried about going off to war, maybe it just takes the better of you. The second thing to think about is be aware of your power and take responsibility. So a lot of people blame other people for what's going on around them for anything bad that might, ha might happen in their life. And what we're suggesting here is take ownership, right? So when you take ownership of the things in your life, it makes it easier to reconcile. It takes away a lot of anger because if you're angry about somebody because they did something that messed something up for you, then carrying around that anger is really destructive. You know, if you happen to miss the mark and you did something or didn't do something that you could have, that would have helped you get to the place you wanted to get to or, or, or achieve what it is you wanted to achieve, much better, much better to have it hang on you because then you can fix it. It's hard to fix things other people do, right? So own your stuff, be in control. One way that you, one way that you feel not trapped is by being in control, being able to open and close the door is a big deal for lots of people, right? I worked with prisoners for years in the jails, in the prison system. You know, for them, the ability to open and close the door is all about control and freedom. Who's controlling the door? In our lives, who's controlling the door in your life? That's the question. Am I in control or somebody else in control? Am I making decisions that are good for me or making decisions that are good for everybody else? You don't have to be locked in a room to feel trapped. Sometimes you're just trapped in the environment, trapped in the, in the relationship, trapped in the level of communication or drama, so to speak. So take responsibility over your own life. Be in control because that feeling of control really really makes a difference. It helps you feel power versus powerless. Another thing to think about, right, is life responds to you. So your outlook and the way you see the world has absolutely everything to do with how the world sees you and acts towards you. You know, I work with, uh, in my, I have, a, I have a coaching practice and in my coaching practice, I work with people, um, young people mostly, but uh, work with people who, you know, are trying to be better at what it is they're already really good at. And to be able to do that, you really need to be able to, to, you know, get yourself organized in your thinking, get yourself organized in your thoughts, be able to be in control, knowing that you have the ability to make a difference. You have the ability that to, to give that, that feeling of championship, being a champion, that feeling of a champion's life by walking around with your shoulders back and your chest out, the world will respond to you based on what you deliver to it or deliver to those around you. The more confident that you feel, the more confidently you carry yourself, the more confidently you speak, the more positive people will respond to you. 
people respond um, usually unfairly to people who are maybe a little lacking in confidence, maybe not a little more, you know, kind of holding their head down, right? So shoulders back, chest out, eyes forward. You are as amazing as you think you are. You just got to let the rest of the world see that too. And that's how we escape some of the non-physical barriers that we have in our life. In terms of physical barriers, get out, get healthy, work out, run, do the things you need to do, because that's going to make all the difference in the world. You are in control of you, and that's how you open the door and don't feel locked in. When we come back, we're going to do more stuff. You're on the road to recovery. Yona Bud, 640 Toronto. Welcome back to Road to Recovery with Yona Bud, only on 640 Toronto. And welcome back to the show. You're here with Yona, Road to Recovery, 640 Toronto. Thank you for joining us. Uh, you know, I've been I read an article this week, and it's kind of come up in my life before, uh, and it's about cannabis and how it affects pets. In particular, uh, my interest is how it affects dogs because I had a situation. I have a little dog. His name is Siggy, and somehow got a hold of uh, what I think was a jo- somebody rolled through a joint out, a half smoked joint on the property where we walk him. Somehow he must have gotten it and eaten it and came back and had all kinds of horrible side effects and was wetting himself and lying on the floor and vibrating and shaking. And, uh, and I began to wonder about, you know, the effects of marijuana now that it's become so readily available and the, you know, the effects of marijuana on, on, on pets, on different animals. Uh, I know some people, some young people in particular that I find that think it's hysterical to try to get their dogs or cats high um, not funny at all. I wouldn't do it to a baby. I certainly wouldn't do it to an animal. So I have an expert who's joining me here tonight. And his name, his name is Dr. Gibran Kokar. And he's the uh, associate professor, assistant professor, excuse me, uh, at the Guelph Ontario's Veterinary College. And his uh, expertise is in neuroscience. He's actually not a vet. He's a professor of neuroscience, a doctor of neuroscience. And he's joining us this evening. Dr. Kokar, thank you for joining us. Great to be here. Thank you. So you heard me kind of in the opening um, kind of talk about how, you know, people think it's kind of cute and funny to get their dogs high or get their pets high. Not so funny, right? Not so funny at all. Um, and it's, you know, it's important to to talk about this because sometimes the the effects can be more than just a mild passing high. And that's, I think, what we found in our study is that while most animals got better just through uh, being monitored for, you know, 24 to 48 hours in an outpatient setting, um, and, you know, it passed, in some cases, it was more severe. And then we even had 16 deaths reported. And so, you know, even one death is one death too many. And it wasn't for sure that it could be due to the cannabis alone, um, it's still important to be aware and be careful around both storing cannabis, but also disposing of cannabis. And in the, in the scenario that you started off with today, um, that's an important part as well, where, you know, people throw away discarded joint butts or roaches anywhere on the street and then somebody can inhale them and or ingest them and uh, would be affected by the cannabis that would be remaining in that joint give me an idea just uh, it's kind of simple if you can dumb it down a little bit for us an idea of what the what study uh you know you undertook and kind of the top line um findings if you could please 
Yeah, so we did a survey of veterinarians across North America to assess how have changes in the legal status of cannabis across Canada and the U.S. impacted the number of cases of cannabis-induced toxicosis, basically cannabis poisoning or cannabis um, toxicity arising from cannabis in, in pets, um, pre versus post legalization and what does it look like um, and so we found that you know most of the vets that reported that they they had observed changes in the number of toxicosis cases reported that they had seen an increase in these cases post legalization and the most common symptoms they reported were exactly what you mentioned so um urinary incontinence where the the pets peeing where they're not supposed to i guess even more than usual um and then on top of that uh things like difficulty moving um difficulty you know in terms of coordinated walking uh but also changes in heart rate and um so those those were the sort of big um, and then the other one was uh, hyperesthesia which is basically um you know uh, hypersensitivity of all the senses and yeah. so those were the the sort of main uh, symptoms that were observed when um interesting that you say that you know talk about cannabis toxicity uh but you know there are many many products out there uh that are cbd you know the cannabinoid side of the uh, marijuana plant not as i'm sure you know you're you're a scientist uh but uh, a lot of there's a lot of pet remedies that have cbd in it and when i you know give or we, we recommend a cbd product to a patient they will still test sort of they will still test in a urinary test they'll still test positive for for cannabis um are we talking about thc that's toxic or all of the uh all of the elements of the of, uh, of cannabis it is probably THC, but it could also be the metabolites of THC, like 11-hydroxy-THC. Right, um, and, right. you know, as, as we know, the dose makes the poison. And so at some doses, THC may even have therapeutic effects in um, pets, just like it does in humans. And, and the same would apply for CBD as well. Um, but it's the dose that makes the poison. And if you give a high enough dose of CBD, even in humans, um, you can see liver toxicity and other things. So, so it's important to not just make one the bad guy and the other the good guy carte right. blanche, right? Like right. They, it's the dose that makes the poison. I think that's the important point. And then especially when we assume a human, we assume a 70 kilogram human as the sort of average human. Whereas um, when it comes to uh, pets, you see it great variability if we, a dog's a dog but their weight could vary tenfold right so the same dose may mean very different things in two very differently sized dogs as an example and so so it's important to to sort of remember that it's the dose that makes the poison and not necessarily um just what it might be thc versus cbd the other thing that you mentioned is an important point especially because it remains an unregulated market and um, cannabinoids of any sort, be it THC or CBD, have not been approved for use in pets. Um, 
you basically the products that you might find on the market would be unregulated and there is no guarantee that a cbd marketing product um has just cbd or for that matter has any cbd at all um, and so so it's it's really important to be considerate of that and even you know supposedly hemp based products that shouldn't have too much thc often end up uh, having detectable levels of thc in it and so i think that's that's the the important important uh, point to take home is that you know what you might find at the local pet store or on Amazon and it says it's a TV, CBD based product to help your dog calm down or whatever none of those are regulated um, sh- should not be used and it's the same thing for human products yep. as well you yep. know so products that might be sold on the Ontario cannabis store as an example are not approved or safe for pet consumption and so so you know before you go experimenting or self-medicating or in this case pet medicating um, using the drugs that you might use for yourself um, exercise caution and you know best to avoid it until we have more of the data around it and have approved indications for which um, it might be useful. So we only got a, a couple of minutes left here. So I do, I, I want to get a few more things done and I would love to have you come back on because it sounds like you're a guy with a lot of knowledge in the areas that I'm kind of really interested in. Uh, and I think our, our audiences as well. Uh, but, you know, um, one of the, so when I, when my dog uh, ate uh, the joint or whatever he found, uh, we ended up taking him to a vet and then you talk about how it'll just pass over time. We went to an emergency vet, and twelve hundred and fifty dollars later, they 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 monitored him and gave him some some uh, fluids uh, for twenty four hours. So I want people to understand that it's just not as simple as just letting your dog lie there and get through it. You know, you need to take them to a vet, and it's going to cost you real money. So if you think yeah. it's cool, if you think it's cool to give your pets something, get them high, give them a gummy or something, it's not cool at all. Um, I don't know that you know this answer, but I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you the question anyway, doctor. Uh, is it illegal? To, to give you to get your animals high i don't think we've had and so i've actually tried looking into this especially when i was making the rounds of interviews a couple of weeks ago when the study first came out i mean i couldn't find any information on it but i i think the important point that you made is about the cost of care associated with it. veterinary care is not cheap and so you know even if nothing else uh bothers people or makes them change their behaviors and they might be thinking it's fun. Um, Monetary loss is often a strong agent of behavioral change. And so reminding them of that, I hope will at least make them not take those risks with the lives of their pets. And then the other thing that I started off with today uh, about the the need for remembering that there were some deaths reported. And yes, you know, the, the problem is that, you know, we can't necessarily rule out that it was it wasn't due to xylitol or chocolate that might have been found in the edible gummies that were uh, most often reported to be um, the cause of concern, the edible uh, cannabis formulations that were the most commonly um, uh, reported uh, route of administration. Um, But so we can't rule those out, but the reality is that the gummies that you might be trying to give to your pet may include xylitol or may include maybe from a chocolate bar or something. And so so those could be lethal or fatal. And so you have to avoid that just as much as you have to worry about the cannabis itself. Well, we'll leave it there and have you back for part two, because I I definitely want to rope you into another one. Uh, I'm talking to Dr. Jibran uh, Kokhar. He's a doctor of neuroscience, assistant professor at the Vet College in Guelph, Ontario, and a really knowledgeable guy. Don't give your pets 
uh, weed or anything like that because it's going to get expensive and you could potentially kill them. We're going to come back and do some more stuff. We're on the road to recovery. Yonabud, 640 Toronto. You're listening to Road to Recovery with Yonabud only on 640 Toronto. And welcome back to the show. Holy smokes, this thing is just flying by, right? Got a couple more segments left and it's over. I don't get to see you until next week. If you're just tuning in and you missed all of the rest of the show, shame on you. No, you missed a whole bunch of fun and some interesting stuff. You're on the road to recovery. And I'm Yona Bud. I'm your host here at 640 Toronto. And thanks for joining us this evening. Um, I'm getting into a conversation here uh, shortly with one of my, with my guests. And we're talking about a, a program. It's called the Impact Program. And it's designed to help students in mental health crisis. Uh, and they're expanding that in the University of Waterloo. Uh, and it pairs basically police officers with trained mental health workers. So here we are on campus now. We're moving this over. A program that pairs campus police with trained mental health workers. Um, and that gives them the opportunity to respond to people that have uh, mental health issues and perhaps need a different kind of assessment, evaluation than just your general policing, certainly your general campus policing. Uh, we'll get to that in a, probably another show in terms of the difference. But they're integrated mobile police units called IMPACT, and uh, it's designed to help people uh, put, them, uh, put them together uh, it, and it, it, in hopes the program uh, will help avoid unnecessary trips to the emergency room. So until now, a common response to a student's after-hours mental health crisis would be for campus police to take them to hospital for, for an assessment, something that Jeff Stanlick said can be very, very intrusive. Why it's also very necessary at times, opportunities to provide support by the right person at the right place is preferable. According to Stanlick, he's the director of services for CAMH in the Water to Waterloo Wellington region. And he's my guest this evening. Hi, Jeff. How are you? Hello, Yona. Good evening. Thank you for staying up late to play with us. Um, so this is like I've got so many places to go with this conversation. Uh, I deal with a lot of students, uh, university students in my private practice and uh, our outreach programs. And um, the, it's a constant battle, right? It's two o'clock in the morning, super depressed, maybe did something, some substances they shouldn't have, having a really hard time and really no one to talk to. Uh, no nursing around, no medical team around. So like you say, when you're in a bad moment, it's usually a, a roommate who calls campus police. Campus police are usually dispatched. And frankly, as much as I think they work hard to do a good job, they don't have the level of training. Uh, tell me how you see this playing out in terms of training, not just, not just pairing people together, but the training of the officers necessary to be paired with mental health workers. That's right. Yeah. And, and the campus police have every great intention, of course, to make sure that that, that student or that individual is able to be um, connected to the most appropriate supports to keep them safe. And, and typically, and to date, they've had to do that through a apprehension under the Mental Health Act, which requires, uh, as you mentioned, a person who's at risk of hurting themselves or others to be um, essentially handcuffed and transported to the nearest hospital um, for assessment. So the, these situations are intrusive and, and can intensify uh, the person's crisis. Um, and by having clinically trained staff readily available in the after hours, the assessment can happen on campus with the person. And that, that actually translates to about 80% of the um, diversions from wow. uh, the emergency department. Wow, um, and 
the the great thing about as you mentioned pairing uh, our clinically trained staff up with the campus police or the safety officers is that it also helps to build capacity with with the team um, not just the campus uh, safety officers but also the residents uh, staff uh, other staff on campus so you know impacts won't be available 24 7 at, at the campus and and certainly isn't uh, at that level in waterloo wellington communities 24 7 but building capacity with our with our officers with our partners is is a big part of of what we do and um and can help can help those uh, staff and and police officers uh to provide the best quality of support when when we're not available let me ask you something so i i want to spin off here and kind of just noodle a couple of ideas with you you know, it would appear that most colleges and universities have a psychology department, uh, a group of students, uh, most of whom are either bachelor level or master's level. Um, are we looking at the, 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 the crisis response team? Um, what's the potential of matching, let's say, fourth year master's students with on-campus police to kind of take the pressure off of you and the trained people who are part of the uh, uh, CMHA and, and responding units and so on? Has there been a thought about sort of students kind of helping students, but the right training? I, I think that there's lots of ways that the partnership can go. And, and I think that that's certainly a great idea that we can continue to consider. Um, we're still very early on in the pilot project. Um, we, we began at the University of Guelph in October of 2021. And then of course that was not a typical school year um, when, when things were getting better, uh, Omicron yeah. hit and, yeah. and students went back to remote learning. So yeah. we haven't had a really good runway of, of the pilot project. What we do know is that we, we wanna be as accessible as possible on campus right now beyond just the campus police, but residents, staff um, as well, who may be uh, connected with students who are experiencing crisis. And, but I do think there's lots of opportunity to, to partner with, um, with peers on campus to expand the um, support for students. I, I just, you know, I find even in my own practice, when I use my younger, younger therapists with younger patients, they seem to respond well. And I was just thinking, you know, college kids with college kids, even, you know, just regardless of what they're studying, I mean, there's still a more more understandable than let's say a you know 45 year old uh you know uh, trained psychologist psycho you know uh, psychotherapist or social worker or somebody um just you know maybe less off-putting because i'm finding I, I, and i'm going to ask you the question it's not, i don't want to make it about me but i'm finding in my practice that the the, the level of suicide you know suicide idea uh, you know ideal ideology in terms of of you know looking at um, you know suicide planning and thoughts of suicide are, you must be seeing on campus the same, I, I would suggest, same percentage as we're seeing on the street here, so to speak, uh, in terms of uh, high rates of suicidality. We, we've certainly seen an, an increase in need right across the community, and that would that would include our university campuses. Uh, one distinguished, I, I think, is that is important to make as well is that there there are situational uh, crisis life events. Um, uh, that that might uh, lead somebody to uh, a place where they're contemplating um, hurting themselves. And then there's also those situations where there could be the onset of a major mental health uh, uh, diagnosis. And, and that does tend to happen um, during the, 
the university age uh, group. So it, it, it is interesting. I mean, I think the, um, the peer concept is, is a good one um, for those situational crisis. You know, the uh, stress associated with exams or relocating communities, living independently, um, the, uh, the significant mental health presentations uh, really do require a, uh, another level of clinical uh, support and intervention. I'm talking to Jeff Stanley. He's a director of services for Canadian Mental Health Association in Water, Waterloo, Wellington. Uh, Jeff, um, what, what, I don't know if you have the stats, but is it generally, we only got a couple of minutes and I got so many more questions. I um, have to have you back for sure. But uh, the, the, the question I have is, is it generally a roommate or somebody in, in res or in the building that this person is living in that, that's calling for help or is it the person themselves? So how many are sort of, if you can quickly kind of, is it the person reaching out themselves or is it usually somebody on their behalf? It's really both. Um, but typically what I would say is that it's the, uh, the peers and, and the leaders on campus that might uh, observe somebody struggling and not doing so well, they might see a change in, in the person's behavior. Uh, the individual might be isolating more than you know, they typically would. And, and in those situations, they are, are typically used to reaching out to the campus police or the safety officers who will respond to the person's residence or situation. Um, so that I would say is what we're learning to be the more common uh, situation, mm -hmm. though it, it's really a mix of, of everything. Students are also welcome to, to simply walk in or contact uh, our impact team on campus independently also. Uh, the other, the other um, piece I would mention is the uh, counseling and uh, clinical services during the daytime hours at universities yeah. have the ability to, uh, there's really a communication pathway back and forth with okay. our team that work the after hours. And so there might be times where we may follow up with somebody on the weekends or in the evenings to, to, to check in and see how, how they're managing. Yeah, I was going to get to that in terms of aftercare, but you answered the question. Uh, if you're just joining us uh, a little late here, I'm talking to Jeff Stanley. He's the Director of Services for CMHA in Waterloo, Wellington. And we're talking about a program on campus that's uh, designed to help uh, police officers, campus police, respond with mental health support uh, when uh, meeting the needs of a uh, student who's uh, in crisis, generally driven by mental health. Thanks so much, Jeff. We'll have you back on again. When we come back from break, we've got one more piece to do. And uh, so much more to talk about this evening. Thank you for joining us. This is Yona Bud, The Road to Recovery, 640 Toronto. Addiction is a serious issue, and we take it seriously. This is Road to Recovery with Yona Bud on 640 Toronto. Okay, welcome to the last segment of Hour One. You are listening to The Road to Recovery here on 640 Toronto. I'm Yona Bud. I'm your host, and thanks for joining us. If you're just tuning in we got so much going on you missed a whole bunch of great stuff but we got some incredible stuff coming forward so stay with us we got another hour to do after this and uh stick with us and have some fun and share some information and you do that by dialing 416-870-6400 if you want to send me a text 647-488-0086 so we're talking uh in this segment really about police force um the struggle that they're having police forces really worldwide certainly in north america uh, are having a problem dealing with the, or struggling really with meeting the demands of people who are in crisis. 
So, you know, I have situations all the time where a patient is uh, struggling, having a hard time at home, maybe going through some uh, uh, real depressive state or perhaps a manic state where they're really acting strangely. And, you know, first thing I do is I tell the family, call 911. Um, and typically I have the opportunity to work with the officers who are on site, on site uh, at least in a discussion uh, about what's going on with the patient so that I'm able to give them some feedback and uh, some support in terms of uh, background information and so on. And, and frankly, the officers that I deal with day to day, and there were, you know, there's been times, many times where I've showed up to crisis scenes and suicide calls uh, in tow working for the family and showing up and having uh, police officers and 911 responders there. And they do a, a really an exceptional job with the skills and the abilities that they have. And that's really the key piece here is police officer response to situations that might just be outside of their purview, outside of their learning, outside of their skill set or their comfort zone, to say at least. Such a guy, Anthony uh, Hefferman, uh, he's 27-year-old. He was recovering from drug addiction. He was shot by police four times, including three times to the head and neck uh, after officers were called to a Calgary motel in 2015. And they say that he was behaving strangely as he stood near beds with a lighter in his hand and a syringe one assumes full of, uh, of uh, gasoline or something and didn't obey their commands. Uh, the serious response team was there. Um, they police shot him and there was really, uh, there was investigated underway, but no charges were laid. Um, and the family found that that was a, a kind of a difficult pill to swallow. So it goes on, there's a, there's a whole discussion here uh, about police officers and, and response times. Uh, in 2021, there's a study in the Com Journal of Community Safety and Wellbeing that found that 75% of police involved civil, civilian fatalities in Canada involved a, a person experiencing mental health crisis who was under or under the influence of substances or both. Psychologist Patrick Bailey, uh, Dr. Bailey, who consults for the Calgary Police Service, uh, he supports, as I do, more police officer training, says mental health professionals are teamed with officers, but only as a secondary response. And uh, this is a guy who's got his eye on the ball and he's my guest this evening. Dr. Bailey, welcome. Thank you. Okay, this is okay with you. I'm going to call you Patrick because we've chatted a little bit and I think that we're, we're past the ice cold stage. Um, so I've been, I've, been, uh, I've been, you know, I read the article and sort of delved into it a little bit. Um, share with us perhaps uh, kind of off the top, we've got limited time, but share off the top sort of the results of your findings and kind of your perception of where we are in terms of police response in situations that may not be you know, your average bank robbery, but people who feel like they may want to take their own lives or the lives of other others in the midst of a mental health crisis. Thank you. And I, I think let's start with uh, a couple of things. One, our justice system, and by virtue of that, the police have often become the uh, government side of how we initially deal with many mental health crises. Mm -hmm. um, it's difficult to get access to psychologists, psychiatrists, clinical social workers, occupational therapists. It's difficult to get the supports in the community. And so sometimes people have had uh, deterioration to the point where a phone call is made to 911 and a dispatcher or a call taker is given a limited amount of information and needs to make a decision about how that call is going to be dealt with. Mm -hmm. It might simply be a call in which a mental health professional can go out or an EMS professional, or it may be a call in which the, the call taker and dispatcher believe that it needs to be dealt with by a police response. Um, sometimes that happens because the call taker has not been able to get enough information about what's going on, or maybe there is a 
um, on some information that suggests there may be a weapon involved. For example, somebody who's contemplating suicide and has a, a large knife in their hand or has some other weapon. And so the, the initial decision then gets made about how we're going to respond to this. And by and large, it's often not a mental health practitioner who's responding. It's the police who are responding and getting on scene and doing their own evaluation of what needs to happen. And then you get into what I referred to in that quote as the secondary response, where we have in Calgary a significant number of positive resources. We have a police and crisis team that pairs police officers with uh, members of Alberta Health Services. So you get the health side and the policing side responding to these calls. Right. But that's not a primary response unit. They come out after the officers on scene have made their initial assessment. We have a mobile response team. We have a two-on-one line in Calgary for accessing mental health resources. But a number of smaller communities, even a number of larger communities, don't have these kinds of resources. And so you end up with individual police officers dealing with these challenging types of calls. I know in Toronto, they're starting a couple of pilot projects. They've been trying them off and on for years. It's interesting. I was watching a, one of my favorite TV shows last night, which uh, um, Station 19, it's a, it's a fire station kind of show. Um, and they responded to a, a, a mental health crisis. And as they showed up to the call, uh, it was an ambulance call. They showed up to the call and here's this guy showing up on a little scooter with a helmet, kind of a little nerdy looking. And he was the crisis worker. And uh, he showed up to meet them at the call, which based on the show is, is more prevalent in the U.S. I know that, uh, for example, in, um, in Memphis, 20% of police officers have been taught to deal with uh, these kinds of crises and have more support from crisis training and crisis management teams. Is that where you want to go? Is that, is that where we should be going? Um, I, more, more training, more, more of these uh, response teams, uh, first line as opposed to second line response? I, I would say there are three stages. Um, the first, as I alluded to in my first comment, was we need to have better resources in the community that people are able to access so that they don't end up in a mental health crisis that requires a 911 call. Okay. Second is having a broader array of ways of responding when that 911 call comes in. So Calgary, for example, is looking at a model where there may be circumstances in which it is a mental health worker who is the first responder, uh, not putting police into some of those roles. And then the question becomes, well, where are you going to draw the line on that? What are the kinds of calls that are suitable for a re redirection or diversion to a mental health resource versus the ones that should get a police response? And then the third level of responding is having police given a suitable range of skills and, and they are trained in de-escalation and of course yep. they're, they're trained on containment, yep. but putting them in that position on a frequent basis, which is what is happening, uh, leads to some of these negative outcomes. I'm talking to uh, Dr. Patrick Bailey. He's a psychologist who consults for the Calgary Police Department and he's with me and we're talking about uh, resources. We've only got a couple of minutes left. I'd, I'd love to have you come back on because this is, uh, we don't have enough time and uh, Patrick, if you join us another time, because there's so much more to do. But I guess my, my, my last sort of question or the, the piece that I want to talk about is um, as simple as the uniform worn when showing up to the call. Um, have you done any studies or have you looked at the response to, let's say, plainclothes police officers versus fully uniformed officers uh, when responding to people, to people in crisis? 
I have not done the studies, um, but you referred to Memphis, and, and Memphis has the crisis intervention team, which is their 400-odd officers who have been trained to deal with these calls. Yep. And one of the, the it's a, it may seem like a small feature, but it makes a difference. A CIT-trained officer has a particular pin on their uniform so that when they respond, if this is an individual who has had previous interactions with the police, they know to the, the individual knows to look for the officers who have this crisis intervention team pin. And so in that way, it's a little bit of comfort in knowing that this is not going to be a fully armed response. This is not somebody who uh, may be relatively new on the job and hasn't ironed out some of those skills, but rather this is an individual just by the, the nature of wearing the crisis intervention team pin who may be able to provide some additional assistance. Well, I'll tell you, my friend, I am really pleased that you are involved in this kind of activity. It's nice to know that there are studies and that we are moving forward in the right direction. We definitely need a better line of response when we're dealing with people who are, you know, quote unquote, perhaps out of their minds at the time. Um, and, you know, I guess the last little piece, we've only got about 30 seconds left. Uh, last little piece, once, once they're involved in the, in the intervention, are they then moving them to a proper, not that it's not proper, but to a, an established crisis unit, perhaps in a hospital, or, or is that what you were referring to very quickly here? Is that what you were referring to in terms of having limited resources after? And, and that's, that's certainly one of the issues to have our members tied up in an emergency department um, because the hospitals are stretched at this point. Uh, we need to find a better way of dealing with that as well. Dr. Patrick Bailey, he's a psychologist who consults for the Calgary Police Department. You are on the road to recovery. This is Yona Bud, 640 Toronto. We'll be right back. Addiction is a serious issue, and we take it seriously. This is Road to Recovery with Yona Bud on 640 Toronto. Welcome back to the show. Good evening. This is Yona Bud. Recovery is 640 Toronto. Thank you so much for joining us. Second hour, got lots to do. Hope you had a bit of a break. Missed uh, the first seg- the first uh, second sec- sections of our segments of our show this evening. You can always get it uh, on a podcast later on. Um, I think this stuff is available pretty much everywhere after we uh, produce them. So, looking forward to talking about some interesting things here as we go forward. So, uh, first of all, I guess we have to deal with a little bit of depression management now that we uh, are dealing with uh, the NHL. go so uh yeah gotta kind of manage our expectations i suppose but we'll get past it right because there's always next year and go blue jays go that's what we got left right now uh and if you're a soccer fan i think we got some potential there too so it could still be an amazing summer to be a torontonian and a sports fan you know uh had a patient the mother of a patient call me about i don't know a month and a half ago two months ago and she was telling me a story about her son who is a carpenter Construction Workers Union, Carpenters Union uh, in Toronto, and was working on a job site, had been struggling with um, issues with cocaine and alcohol, and um, was telling me a story of how her son um, is now in the hospital having surgery on his hand and wrist. Uh, he basically created a situation where he hurt himself on the job, 
so that he would get time off and a prescription for pain medication, in this case, opioids. And, you know, her concern was that he has an addictive personality, an addictive you know, uh, mindset in terms of other drug issues, although he's been struggling with those. He now seems to be pretty um, reliant on the pain medication and is, in fact, in pain. So when we look at the whole world in terms of you know what industries are most affected by something like an opioid overdose uh, crises, uh, the construction industry is right up there. Uh, as a matter of fact, there's a young man, uh, he was in his 20s, and uh, he died of a, a drug overdose, a fatal opioid use overdose. And uh, the president of the Carpenters Union, his name is uh, Mike York, He'd been lobbying hard to bring attention to what was called the silent crisis amongst his industry. And in the first month, 10 months, they say, of the pandemic, 30% of employed Ontarians who died from overdose, you know, drug overdoses, worked in construction, the highest proportion of any other industry in the country, and perhaps even in the world in terms of number of people that are highly affected. So they kicked off a campaign back in May 31, 2021, and uh, spearheading uh, basically some broad awareness on the stark impact of the opioid crisis on that industry. And the campaign urged workers not to use opioids alone and to only use them with an naloxone kit handy. So the discussion wasn't about why they're using them or the fact that they're not good for you, but more importantly, just to prevent an overdose, which, you know, to keep people from dying, I'm all over that. I guess that's a, a sensible approach, but it's hardly the icing on the top of the cake. You know, I deal with people that have, you know, many different types of uh, uh, compulsive issues, addictions, and so on. Opioids is right up there. And it, you know, it always starts with a story, you know, you know, either they tell me the story directly or it's usually a parent. You know, my daughter uh, was a, uh, you know, a, a a gymnast, hurt herself in training, um, ended up on pain medication, and it's two years later, and she hasn't stopped. There's always a, this is how I started the pain medication, typically, typically. There are other many, there are many other situations, and amongst the construction industry, you know, to, to roll from alcohol, you know, you know, alcohol and cannabis are pretty rampant uh, in most of the construction industries. Um, I'm not, you know, judging, I'm just sharing a fact. You know, I have a, a fair number of a fair number of patients in my experience curve of that, you know, that come from that industry. So to, to roll into pain medication, especially if one hurts themselves on the job, um, is not a big stretch at all, right? So you take the pain meds, but the fact that this, going back to my story, the fact that this young young man hurt himself purposely, and then I, I heard more stories after I got to work with him, uh, still working with him, um, and, um, you know, the, the, the stories that he would tell me of other, uh, construction workers, you know, his, his peers, uh, doing crazy things like dropping, you know, um, heavy things on an ankle to snap an ankle to, to get the time off with pay and to get access to the opioids. So, you know, it's, it, there's kind of a thing going that if you're in construction, you know, it's first of all, it's a very difficult job, right? A um, lot of opportunity to hurt yourself, right? You're dealing with heavy things and equipment and hammers and things that, you know, 
could, uh, I know I sound like an idiot, right? I've, I've never worked on a construction site, but, you know, there's lots of opportunity to get hurt, more so than, let's say, in a law office or working at a bank or being a school teacher or a cab driver or whatever, right? Um, more of a chance of, you know, getting hurt on the job when you're in that kind of an environment, one would say. Uh, but they're trained, right? Good, good, good workers, good cabinet, good carpenters, good, you know, uh, people who know what they're doing in all of these trades have some training uh, around how to be safe and how to be careful. But the question now becomes, what do you do with an industry that's so rampant with a problem like this? So interestingly enough, the construction industry have their own treatment facility. In Toronto, the acknowledgement of substance use in the trades dates back to the 1990s when uh, um, United uh, UA Local 46, the union representing plumbers and steam fitters, welders, they created an addictions treatment facility called DeNovo, specifically for members of the construction industry. And it's primarily focused on alcohol addiction, um, but you know they do provide some care around, um, uh, around uh, substance abuse of all kinds. Now, I know a lot of people have gone to, to, to De Novo. I've had many of them come to um, our residential facility, uh, the farm in Stouffville, to you know get the help that they weren't able to get at De Novo. And I'm, again, I'm not putting De Novo down. Um, it's not my. It's not what I do. It's not how who I am. Uh, but it's a 42 bed facility. They see about 500 people a year uh, from the industry specifically, and it's funded entirely by union fees and union dues. Uh, it's membership of more than 80 trade unions across Ontario, amounting to about 200,000 workers that have access to the facility. So if in any facility, if you want to do the work and be serious about it, it, it can work for you. Uh, but if you're, not, if you're in a facility that's not really driving you hard to get the work done, um, so one of the things, for example, at this facility is because it's a union-driven facility, uh, they, they don't provide any random uh, drug testing to the best of my knowledge because that goes against union rules. So um, it's kind of, you know, uh, it's kind of hampered in terms of what you could do in a facility in terms of keeping people on the straight and narrow, but they do the best job they can, and I think that's, you know, better than most. And for the, and, and the, the other, I guess the other part of it is, there's no real investment on the part of the patient, right? So whether whether it's time off work that they're not getting paid for, in this case they get paid, they're also paying for the treatment. So the motivation to do well um, isn't the same as, you know, having to spend money out of pocket or give up time without pay or in some way kind of be invested in the treatment process. Anyway, I, I think that there's a lot to be said for what's going on in the industry. I think we need to pay a lot of attention to um, the, the recidivism rate, the number of people that are going through and, you know, in and out of a place such as DeNova, for example, or any other place for that matter. Um, and, you know, what that looks like, you know, are we really doing anything? Are they really doing anything? Is it, is is, is this facility or the not, the, not the facility itself per se, but the use of the facility as represented and, and kind of demanded or um, required by the union, 
Is it leading to people getting well? Is, is there counseling involved after? Is there any mental health care leading, you know, looking at why people are using and to what extent they're using and, um, you know, where does that come from? What's the mental health stuff? What kind of work are they doing on, you know, post-traumatic stress? There's a lot of uh, injury and, and stuff that you see on the site. Um, maybe, you know, you, you, somebody saw somebody get hurt and they can't kind of live with that, so they drown their sorrows in whatever substance works for them at the time, right? So... It's hard to really understand how to make this better per se, but I think the fact that there's eyes on it, people are talking about it, and they're making a big deal about it, I think is a really good thing. And at the end of the day, anything that helps us get to the other side of this opioid epidemic and this fentanyl poisoning that we see everywhere all the time, every place, um, and we just happen to have a light shining on that one industry, but it shouldn't cast aspersions that all construction workers are drug and uh, drug addicts and alcoholics because that's not it at all. It's just an industry that's rampant with uh, pain and suffering and, and injury, and I guess that's uh, where it makes a natural attraction. We'll be right back. we got more stuff to do here. You're on the road to recovery. This is Yonah Bud, 640 Toronto. Welcome back to Road to Recovery with Yona Bud, only on 640 Toronto. And welcome back to the show. Thank you for joining us this evening. This is the Road to Recovery. I'm your host, Yona Bud, and you're listening to 640 Toronto. Thank you. If you're driving, keep your hands on the wheel and just listen. Road to Recovery at 640toronto.com is what you can do during the week by email. And if you ever want to get me, you need to talk to me about something or something I can help you with or give me some ideas about a great show that I should be doing, 877-777-5808 is my number, 877-777-5808, and I will call you back. And if you're out there and you've done it before, you know that I keep my word. I do get back to everybody, whether it's email, text message, or voice, because you're my family, man. You're my radio family, and I love you guys and gals out there and everyone who's in between. And uh, appreciate that you listen and pay attention and spend time with us. So um, chime in on this, okay? The Toronto District School Board is putting an end to auditions. I, I got a whole bunch of, to do here. So we got 12, almost 10 minutes of me ranting about this, I guess. They're talking about en ending auditions and entrance exams for specialty high school programs. So I remember, boy, I go back a long time when I was a kid. And I attended a um, a gifted art program at a place called C.W. Jeffries. Uh, it was the, I was there the first year they built the art wing. It was magnificent. They had pottery tables and they had places to do uh, painting and, and photography. And we were doing letra setting and learning about typesetting. And it was it was really quite a quite an excellent program. Unfortunately, I was busy creating a mess. Um, but it, to take really good, take real good advantage, take real advantage of the opportunity, I suppose. Um, but you had to try out. I had to provide a portfolio. I remember, you know, crazy anxious nights of putting together artwork, you know, and, and things that I had to present. And you had to present, you know, a portfolio. And you had to write a, an essay on why you wanted to take an art program. I have, you know, so many other friends of mine that went off to gifted programs for dramatic arts and photography and and music. I mean, holy smokes, I got a half a dozen buddies that um, are, you know, gifted professional um, musicians today that all studied in, in, in 
programs in gifted programs. I have a friend of mine now teaches in one of those gifted programs. Um, and yeah, but you had to try out. Here, here's the point. What am I rambling about? You had to try it. It wasn't just for everybody. And it just wasn't for rich kids either because that wasn't enough. wasn't enough that you came from a wealthy family or had more than most or whatever. Your parents had some, you know, some schlep, if you would, some, some pull in the system. You had to have the talent. You had to know what you were doing. And there are so many programs out there, so many gifted programs out there that are called gifted programs for kids that have gifts in academic stuff, have gifts in creative stuff, have gifts in all kinds of, uh, you know, the world of sports and and athletics. Well, the school's talking about perhaps uh, what they're doing is they they don't need anybody demonstrating strength or ability in a specific field for a a specialized program. Um, They just have to state their interest. I'd like to be in the art program, please. So here's where I'm coming from. I'm all for inclusion. By the way, I believe every school that I know of, high school, middle school, you know, grade school, um, they have programs that deal with art. They have, you know, an opportunity to do drama. They have usually music programs in the middle school, high school uh, neighborhood uh, neighborhood schools, you know, public schools. Um, there are, th- you know, athletic programs after school, I think, still. It's been a while, but, you know, so the, the general kids that wanted to do those things, did them in a regular school environment. And by the way, they showed some remarkable gift or talent. Their teachers in those programs, in the in the regular streamed programs, would in fact, and we're going to get to streaming here in a minute because that's a whole other discussion, um, those, would, those kids would have a chance to go and test to see if they can make it to, you know, the better programs or the more specialized programs. Not every kid gets to play rep baseball, hockey, soccer, whatever. Not every kid is good enough to represent a region, an area, whatever. Doesn't mean they can't have fun playing the sport. Doesn't mean they can't play play some kind of in competitive leagues. But I have a concern for what happens to those that have that extra gift. They're in the same class with those that don't. And I'm not suggesting that it's a, a you know, it's a, it's a, um, uh, cultural exchange thing in terms of, not even cultural, but in terms of economic uh, positioning thing. Just one has more talent than the other. So if the teacher's spending a lot of time with the one that isn't really gifted in that specific skill just because they're interested in it, it takes away from those that are gifted and probably will move on in their lives to use that gift in some way, shape, or form to make a living or to do, or to carry on and do something else. So a lot of parents and school and, and students that are in the program, specialized program, are having big issues with this kind of a situation. They're having big issues with, you know, what to do um, with, you know, this stream, this whole concept of streaming, right? And I, I think what we're talking about here is that there's a whole whole other thing that that's going on beyond just the the end of these specialty programs, so that you know all kids can be in all programs. I don't know how we're gonna make that work but there's also they're, they're also looking at changing the whole streaming campaign streaming means i think when you're in ninth grade i could be off but it's been a while uh but i think when you're in ninth grade you can choose or maybe 10th grade you choose whether you want you know 
to study math at a level that's going to get you into a community college or math at a level that's going to get you into the University of Toronto or some university. There's a difference. So a guy or, or a person, an individual, a student that wants to go on and be, a, I don't know, a carpenter, let's say, may not want to go to university, but may want to rather go to one of the great colleges we have here in Ontario, George Brown, Seneca, Humber, like there's so many, right, where you can get your skill set and still be academically, uh, you know, still have academic achievement. And it used to be when I went to school, if you can remember, give me a call here if I'm the only one that remembers this, 416-870-6400. Remember when some kids just stopped at grade 12 and graduated? And some kids went on to grade 13 to graduate, right? That's what we're talking about here. Some kids at grade 12 were ready to go out into a college environment or to an apprenticeship program. They didn't need to go off to university. It wasn't part of where they were going. Well, they're talking about changing all that. So that kind of streaming is no longer going to be a valid situation. It's not something we're going to be doing going forward, apparently. So that all kids will take school, take programs at all levels accordingly. And that means that, you know, if you're not planning to go off, the, so I, I see it as a, an achievement issue. Like if, if, if a particular student isn't really great in math and has to take the same math as someone who plans to go off to be an accountant or an auditor or something like that, where math is a big deal and something that they need, they need to learn how to count. I know I'm making it simple. Then that makes sense. But if someone's going to be a carpenter or a plumber or any other kind of trade, let's say, for example, that that's not where they're going or a nurse where you're off to college versus university because that's the training and, and the stream that you're looking for that gives you the most comfort because in college you do co-op work and you actually learn on site, on the job. I don't know. It doesn't make sense to me. Uh, I'm concerned about it. I do want to see them bring back grade 13, whole nother discussion for another day. You're just going to have to stay tuned. And by the way, do you know where your children are, your loved ones, your pets? If you don't know where they are, you probably should go find them. If you can't find them and you're really concerned, like seriously concerned, call 911 and don't even think twice about it. I don't know, man. I, I, I have a problem with messing with education right now. The kids are so unstable. Right, you know, I have kids calling me. Uh, I had a kid call me the other day on thir Wednesday, Thursday, and he was really concerned that he's going to graduate uh, in the next couple of weeks from twelfth grade, and he doesn't feel ready. But he feels it really. He feels it. He doesn't really have an opportunity to go to his teacher and say, "I, I really want to do grade twelve again or some of my subjects again because I don't feel ready." Now, in fact, you can, right? You can take on take those credits again, summer school next year, whatever. A lot of kids just aren't ready. They're just not ready to go after grade 12. They're not ready to go after the last couple of years of make-believe education. And I say that with respect, but it's make-believe education. Half the kids were, you know, messing around during their video classes. Half the kids didn't show up. Half the kids didn't know this from that or that from this, right? So we are where we are. We're going to try to move forward in a healthy way, the best way possible. And when we do... We're going to see that the results we see in our children are much more positive than the way are today. But they're not nearly ready right now. So to start adjusting all kinds of other stuff, I think it's a big mistake. Anyway, we come back. We got more stuff to talk about, stuff I hope interest is, interests you, disabilities and disability stuff around mental health. It certainly interests me. 
So come on back and we'll share. You're on the road to recovery. This is Yona Bud, 640 Toronto. Addiction is a serious issue, and we take it seriously. This is Road to Recovery with Yona Bud on 640 Toronto. And hello and welcome back to the show. This is Yona Bud. You are on the road to recovery. You're listening to 640 Toronto, and I'm so happy you could join us this evening with couple of segments still left to go here. We had a lot to do tonight. Hopefully you stuck around and heard most of it. If not, you can catch us, uh, catch our podcast online there somewhere for sure. Um, Justice Department in the U.S. This is something that kind of, you know, so one of the things, before we get to the kind of this hit main storyline, you know, people often say, you know, you work with people with addictions and, you know, uh, they, is it really a mental health issue or do they actually, you know, is it a choice thing and why don't they just make better choices and just kind of walk away from the drugs or don't bother doing the drugs or, you know, uh, alcohol in, in, in is certainly up there too. Um, but, you know, a substance use disorder is exactly that. It's a disorder. It's not a choice for many, many people. I'm not saying everyone, you know, is in that same situation. I'm not saying that there are not lots of people out there that just choose to get high and choose to get high because that's what they choose to do or to get drunk because that's what they choose to do. But the people I see, the people I work with, they get high, they get drunk to get to try to get through what is a very painful day emotionally, psychologically, and otherwise. So the Department of Justice announced in the U.S., it's an American uh, piece here, but the Department of Justice announced today that it's published a guidance on how the Americans with Disabilities Act will protect people with opioid use disorder, called OUD. It's actually an acronym for it now, and that's how messed up we are. It has its own acronym. That's when you know you're in trouble, my friends, is when there's an acronym for something that's going on in society that's killing people, and there's a shortcut for how to talk about it. Because people are talking so much about it that they choose to, uh, they have to choose to say about it, talk about it with some quick description as opposed to saying, you know, people have an opioid uh, problem or a problem with drugs. It's, oh, you, now they have OUD. It's something you can be, you can be diagnosed with. Anyway, I, I digress. The publication is the American with Disabilities Act and the opioid crisis. It's combating discrimination against people in treatment or recovery. It's intended to help people with OUD who are in treatment or recovery understand their rights under federal law and provide guidance to entities covered by the ADA, so American Drug Administration, I suppose, about how to comply with the law. So the crisis, the epidemic crisis continues. We're now talking about the opioid epidemic. I'm not talking about COVID anymore, right? And... People who have stopped illegally using drugs should not face the same discrimination when accessing evidence-based treatment or continuing on a path to recovery. So how do you know? Like if you've ever driven by a church at 7, 7.30 in the evening and, see, and you know, saw like 10 or 15, 20 people outside usually smoking with a coffee cup in their hand, they're probably going to some kind of meeting. AA meeting, NA meeting, so Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, Cocaine Anonymous, Cannabis Anonymous, Gamblers Anonymous. So there are support groups. And you don't know that people are in support groups because they're anonymous. So how do you know if they're on a path to recovery? How do you know if they're involved in evidence-based treatment? What's evidence-based treatment? I can tell you that most treatment facilities in this country are are basically 12-step 
you know, AA, NACA type meetings on steroids with a little bit of mental health piece attached to it. But they're basically all about substance, substance, you know, abstaining from using substances. And very little about the mental health that supports, you know, the reason why someone uses, which is how you, how you fix them. It's how you help them is by figuring out what, what the reason is you use to be, to begin with before you start, you know, like I tell people all the time, I don't care what you do or how much of it you do. I care why you do it. Right. Anyway. So the idea is how do you, in this, in this letter on March the 25th, the department issued a letter finding that the Indiana state board of nursing violated the American drug administration by denying a nurse uh, or I'm sorry, American disabilities act. That's not, not I wrong. ADA is, for the American Disabilities Act, by denying a nurse the opportunity to participate in a substance use disorder rehab program because she takes medication for her OUD. So medication for OUD or opioid use disorder, if you forget what it stands for, hopefully you do. You never have to remember that again. It shouldn't be in your life, and if it is, we need to talk, right? Give us a call so we can talk about that, do what we can to help. But the medication we're talking about is methadone or suboxone for the most part in some parts of the world that might be um, using using actual opioids um, to counter the opioid use disorder uh, behaviors that you know might be involved like sort of the lying the stealing the cheating all that goes with trying to keep your habit or your medicate your your self-medication regime in order I know I'm, I'm trying I'm not trying to flower it up believe me I understand I understand this is not a good thing I understand that you you know drug use from the outside looking in just looks like a bad choice, but I'm telling you, man, I, I deal with so many people every day, every week, every month, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people a year, myself, that I talk to and try to and try to direct or help if we can, who just can't get away from that four or five shots at the end of the day of vodka or the six beers at the end of the day or the shot in the morning or the couple of lines of cocaine or the half a pill to get on their feet or the you know the 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 opioid you know uh, the the opioids during the day to survive because the withdrawal is so horrible and and then at, at night trying to get yourself to sleep with sleeping aids like it, it it's it's it, it's a horrible place to be stuck and stuck is what they are you know, I have people all the time that say, how do I stop using? And the answer is we start figuring out why you use and what the triggers are, and we teach you how to avoid those. And in the meantime, here's how you get clean and sober. And by the way, you can get clean and sober at home if you've got good direction, good medical intervention, so a doctor on side, you know, get yourself a counselor, a therapist, somebody who can guide you through it. You know, if you can't get into a, re a residential program that doesn't work for you, there are ways to deal with stuff at home. We have a program called Recovery at Home. We see tons of people virtually, and it's highly successful. I never thought it would be, by the way. A couple of years ago, if you would have told me virtual therapy was a thing, I would have said, no, not for me, it isn't. I need to hug my parents, patients. I need to see them. But it works. It works really well. So we get lots of people clean and sober. There's a lot of other uh, virtual programs out there that seem to be somewhat successful and doing a good job. So, you know, there are other solutions to getting clean and sober. But for many people to get to that stage usually involves getting to a place in your life where you're so broken, you're at the bottom line or at the bottom of your 
of your of your uh, ability to cope in terms with in terms of being sick and tired of being sick and tired right so it's not a choice necessarily that's you know can just be flip a switch but this article goes on to talk about some kind of settlement agreement to, to allow this this nurse by the way to to continue to take um, um, go get treatment even while she's on medication for her for her uh, opioid use disorder. So in our in our residential treatment centers, we allow people who are on, you know, allow. We admit people. The terrible, terrible, the, the term allow. It's disgusting, I know. Uh, the, we, we do admit patients, um, and others like us do the same, not many, but some, uh, we do admit patients that are on medication for an opioid use disorder or for other some other form of medication for their mental health or anxiety or so on. Many facilities that are 12-step based that are, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous and any of those, something like those, uh, they are abstinence-based programs, which means you cannot come in and take a substitute opioid or medication for your alcohol use and attend meetings. From what I'm told, I'm not a member, so I don't know for sure, but I'm told that you need to be abstinent. And in the U.S. in particular, this article that we just talked about talked about a woman, a nurse, a person who wanted to get the help she needed but was also on uh, an opioid antagonist like Suboxone or um, or um, uh, other forms. What's the other one? Uh, it slips my mind. Uh, methadone, sorry. Um, and, you know, that's okay. It's under a doctor's care. People that take these opioid, you know, antagonists like uh, suboxone and like methadone have to be seen by a doctor regularly and their urine and their blood checked regularly so that they're not using because if you can't, you know, if you, you can't really use the antagonist and the drug at the same time, it'll make you pretty sick for the most part. So the answer here is we can't look at people who are trying to get help in any other way other than in a loving, caring, supportive, understanding and non-judgmental mindset because it's hard. It's really hard. Patients that reach out and actually ask for the help and get it are truly superstars. And those are the people that we need to talk about. And those are the people we need to focus on, the ones that work really hard at becoming successful in their lives and overcoming all the reasons why most people think they shouldn't and why they have to self-medicate. And we help them get back on their feet, and they do very, very well. It's a decision, though. That's the decision. I need help. I want to get help. Not if I want to use or not. It's whether you want the help or not. When we come back, we're going to have, uh, in our last segment here, we're going to talk about a fully accessible Toronto or Ontario by 2025. I've been bouncing around on a scooter for the last couple of weeks. I can hardly wait to share with you. It's not so accessible. We'll be right back in just a minute. You're on the road to recovery. This is Yona Bud, 640 Toronto. You're listening to Road to Recovery with Yona Bud, only on 640 Toronto. And welcome back. I always find myself at the end of the show going, are we over? Is it really over already? Is it over already? Like, we just got started. Boy, time flies when you're engaged. That's for sure. When you're distracted and you got, got something going on and hanging out with all of you guys gives me something to go and do and keeps me busy and just I love it I look forward to it I hope you do too and I really enjoy the interaction when we're able to have some so give me a call 
If you run around on a scooter like I do or a wheelchair or walker or something or have some issues uh, that you're, you're not accessible, the world, the whole world isn't accessible to you like it is if you're an able-bodied person that's able to walk around and such as I was, let's say, a year ago. I never even thought about accessibility, really. I mean, I, I did, but I didn't. So we're now finding ourselves here um, in 2000, coming up to 2023 very shortly. And back in 2005, there was a bill uh, that was uh, passed that talked about, uh, or they were they they felt that, that the bill he and other disabilities had been fighting to pass for more than a decade. He finally became into law, and the Accessibility for Ontarians with Disabilities Act (AODA). A historic achievement for the province and for champions of disability rights. The new law, passed unanimously, was supposed to make Ontario completely accessible for for people with disabilities by 2025. The 20-year timeline felt distant and achievable at the time. Activists thought it wasn't ambitious enough, should have been done sooner. And today, even the most optimistic advocates can see that it's probably not going to be reached. So... I can tell you that since I uh, took on the, um, I can't, so real quick backstory, I have uh, lower back issues where my discs, L4, L5, um, actually L5 and S1, are, are, are compressed, and in between those two compressed discs are my sciatic nerves, so you can imagine that my legs constantly fire in pain and very, very difficult to stand. So over time, I was able to stretch and do a bunch of things that would make, would make it easier to cope and so on. Uh, but, you know, as I got older and it progressed, it doesn't really get worse. It's just the longer I load my spine, which is standing up, walking around, that's loading. Unloading, it would be, you know, bending forward, lying down, sitting down is still a bit of a load, but not the same as standing. It's all about loading your spine is what I've learned with this situation. Anyway, the long and the short of it is I can't walk. I mean, I can walk from here to there. I can certainly, you know, uh, walk 50 feet, 100 feet. I need to sit down, Um, but I can't walk. I can't go for a walk. I can't walk a kilometer. I can't walk through a mall. can't walk through an airport. can't walk through a park with my wife and my dog and my grandkids. I just can't walk. I need to sit down every 50, 100 feet and, and stretch. And so I became a scooter owner of a disability scooter. It's very cool. It's very portable. It's easy to take in and out of my car. It's easy to transport on an airplane. It's, it's really, I did a lot of research. So not so much about me and a scooter, although it's about me and a scooter and trying to get around Toronto. So one of the things I found is there's not a lot of curb cuts on mall type curbs or curbs in condo buildings or in most commercial buildings um you know downtown the big offices have ramps and stuff for people with disabilities but most the general city for the most part try to get into a convenience store on Roncesvalles for example i'm just coming up with a name or, 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 or some shop or sometimes, you know, an old pharmacy, like an old shopper's drug market downtown that's not retrofitted or, you know, try to get into certain restaurants and fast food places. And there's a little curb between the front of the door and where you walk in. Well, if you've got something with wheels that has to get over that, it's a problem. 
And for the most part, a lot of those doors that you need to get into to get into, let's say, Burger Priest or one of those types of places. And again, I'm just throwing out a name. You know, I would say the same for lots of places. Some of the big chains like McDonald's and such, they do a much better job of being, you know, uh, being ready for people with disabilities to access their facilities. But for the most part, Toronto sucks if you've got to get around on four wheels or in my case, three wheels. It's not easy. I've almost tipped over numerous times trying to get up and over things that I shouldn't have to get up and over. And there's 2.6 million people in Ontario with disabilities that in some way, shape, or form need extra, extra uh, access, extra, uh, you know, extra stuff done to particular facilities so that you can have access. Retrofitting or building, you know, new construction is a little different because disability, um, you know, you have to provide certain access to people with disabilities when you're building something new or opening something new these days, certainly more so than in the past. But what exists out there today, some of these old beautiful buildings in downtown Toronto that have like the coolest bars and restaurants, I can't get into on a scooter. So I got to park my scooter, get off my scooter and walk into the facility. So for me, it's not a horrible thing because I'm able to do that. And as long as I'm going somewhere to sit, I can make that work. But for someone who can't get out of their chair or off their scooter because their legs won't carry them, it's a nightmare. And trying to get past tables and get through, you know, busy lineups. Like I'm going to the airport uh, towards the end of this month to, to head on a, on a on a week's vacation that's long overdue to do some, you know, some self-care and such. Um, and I'm going through with a scooter through the airport and arriving in, on an, in an island destina- des- destination on the other side with a scooter. Like I'm hoping this is going to go well. Otherwise, I can't go because I can't get through the airport. And I'm not going to sit around and wait for someone to pick me up in a wheelchair and get me through the airport because they don't show up on time. And with the nightmare of lineups and stuff that they have at the airport right now, I'm going to miss my flight for sure if I have to rely on anybody else but myself. And isn't that what it's all about? Isn't that what's being what what being uh, what access for disabled people is all about? Being able to get around by themselves being able to be independent, being able to access places without having to wait for someone to open the door because it doesn't have an automatic door opener. Can you imagine? I got stuck in a, in a, in a, in a door lobby because the outside door opened with the, with the handicap button, so to speak. That's what it looks like, right? But the inside door didn't. I had to somehow finagle my, my, my scooter so that I could somehow get up and press the other button on the inside. They should open together, is what I'm told. They should open in the same, at the same time. You know, one opens first and the other automatically. I got stuck in one of these things. I had to get off my scooter and move it around and try to get through the doorway. But again, I can do that. I can get off my scooter. At least right now I can. I don't know in a few years what it's going to be like. But this is not a disabled-friendly, a disabilities-friendly province. It's not a disabilities-friendly city. Whether it's Richmond Hill, Thornhill, Markham, Toronto, North York, Brampton, Bramley, some are better than others. The old, the newer cities, the newer towns that are being built, you know, the up-and-coming segments of, you know, Western uh, GTA, Eastern GTA, Northern GTA. But the core of the city where things are, have been built for years and years and years, not so friendly to people on wheels, and I'm now one of them. So I'm going to be looking forward to watching what happens leading up to 2023 because I don't think we're going to make that cut 
And if not, I'll be yelling and screaming along with everyone else who needs that kind of support. We're going to see you next week. Have a great week. Be good to yourself. Be nice to one another. Hug the one you're with. And like my mom, may she rest in peace, used to say, if you don't have something nice to say to somebody, don't say anything at all. We'll see you next week. I love you guys. You're off the road to recovery right now. This is Yona Bud, 640 Toronto.